Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm very honored to be speaking to Dr. Robert Talley uh, about a great book that he published with Zero Books. The book is called For a Ruthless Critique of All That Exists, Literature in an Age of Capitalist Realism. Uh, Dr. Robert Talley is a professor of English at Texas State University. Robert, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. What a fascinating title. I must say, before even knew, uh, I knew the book was written by you, I was just captivated by a title uh, for a ruthless critique of all that exists. We'll, we'll be talking about the title. But before that, uh, I'm really interested to know more about your background and how you became interested in literary studies. And I know that you're, uh, uh, you've been a student of Frederick Jameson, so I'm all really interested to know about your journey into literary studies. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, it's it's interesting. I um, I credit uh, Jameson uh, in part with uh, making my jump from philosophy to literature. I was a philosophy major in college, and my interests, you know, were already leaning towards what I didn't know then was called theory, <laughs> because I went to college already very interested in Marx and Nietzsche. Um, to a lesser extent, Freud, but certainly Sartre and existentialism. And uh, indeed, one of the things that, uh, you know, I was very interested in was the interrelations of literature and philosophy, as well as social theory, politics, you know, the the idea that I didn't want to compartmentalize. And I uh, went into college at Duke University in the late 80s, uh, with it in mind to major in philosophy, which I did. Um, Jameson at the time was the head of the literature program, formerly comparative literature. In fact, at the time it was called simply the graduate program in literature. Uh, I don't think they were offering undergraduate majors, but um, I ended up taking a class with him. Had no idea who he was, of course. I was an undergrad. Most undergrads don't know, you know, uh, whether or not their professors are big shots. You know, I I took a, a science class, uh, not realizing that the scientist I was taking it with was like world renowned. Also, I mean, that's just one of the sort of lucky things that happens when you're at a school like that, I suppose. But um, I took the class because it was called "What Is Literature," and it uh, that is the title of a Sartre book. And I thought this would be a kind of cool class to blend my interests in philosophy and literature. Um, and uh, the professor seemed very cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in my little book on Jameson, I began, in, I guess, in the first chapter with a little bit of an anecdote about just that experience of being in the classroom as an undergraduate with Jameson. Only later, really in grad school, only, you know, for the most part, did I start studying his own work. Um, but he was very influential as a teacher and and certainly someone who showed me the way in which you could do literary studies in, in a way that sort of scratched my philosophical itch, but also led to what we were, I guess, then calling interdisciplinary work um, uh, of the sort I wanted to do. Because I, I knew I didn't want to just, uh, you know, focus on uh, the philosophical aspect of this or that. I wanted to to deal with lots of different things. Um, and, and I went to graduate school uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, 
where the PhD program then as now was called the PhD in cultural and critical studies. And it was sort of self-consciously interdisciplinary, um, including you know models of a kind of Manchester School cultural studies uh, background with a, a lot of sort of Gramscianism as well as a lot of Foucauldianism, which I was very interested in. And this is just to say, I, I had this background very much in theory coming from philosophy to literature via theory. At that time, I was still just writing about uh, or thinking I would only write about, you know, Foucault, uh, Frankfurt School, Deleuze. I was very interested in Deleuze at the time. Uh, still am, I suppose. Um, but um, uh, rightly so, my uh, my English professors there sort of nudged me in the direction of like, uh, you know, applying some of this theoretical background to more traditional modes of uh, literary analysis, partly because I was such a terrible reader. They really needed to teach me to read better uh, and not just look for the you know political theory to be found there. Um, and also just the practical issue of there aren't that many jobs in Deleuze studies, but there might be a few jobs left in American studies or whatever. <laughs> so I ended up writing my dissertation uh, the, which became the template for my book, although I rewrote the whole thing for the book, um, uh, first book, uh, on Melville, on Moby Dick, uh, and on Moby Dick and the literary cartography of the world system, as I called it, using the phrase literary cartography as a kind of loose uh, way of getting at something like Jamesonian cognitive mapping alongside uh, Deleuze's uh, kind of spatial theory and, and Foucault's as well. Uh, I'm not claiming I, I made it work exactly, but um, it was, you know, my, my interest in spatiality studies, spatial literary studies was already very firm at that point. And uh, somehow I became a 19th century American lit scholar as well thanks to my researches into Melville and, and, and other writers. <laughs> so that, that, that's my uh, sort of formation as an undergraduate and grad student that led me to, to write the sort of things I started writing once I finally found my way into an academic position. A fascinating story. And before uh, recording this interview, I guess I was telling you that I, I simply came across your book, Spatiality, by accident. So that now makes more sense. Uh, you, you you had also done some studies on literary cartography. Uh, mm -hmm. This uh, this book, I a ruthless critique of all that exists. I don't know if it's the right way to put it or not. This is sort of a defense of uh, critique. Uh, but let's talk about how the book came about. This is a very, uh, it's a short book. Uh, lots of great ideas to think about. Uh, tell us, very briefly, why I decided to write the book and what the title refers to for a ruthless critique of all that exists. Yeah, well, the title, of course, I have to give credit to the um, to the the poet and thinker who wrote it, which is actually Marx. Karl Marx famously, um, in an eighteen forty three letter to uh, Arnold Ruger, uh, uh, discussing the uh, what is to be done pointed out that although we know uh, whence very well, where we come from, uh, the question of whither, where we're going to, is, is much harder to determine. And he argues that we cannot really lay out blueprints. It's part of it, uh, Marx's critique of so-called, what he called utopian socialists and others, 
who did want to have sort of blueprints of the future and he says we can't can't do that and even even if we could the future doesn't care what we think you know they're going to make their own things so he says that what we really need to do if we're interested in bringing the new world into being is uh do so through a critique of the old world and then he adds that you know what is uh what is really for us to do in our own time is a ruthless critique or criticism depending on how you def- uh, translate that word of everything that exists or all that exists and so my uh, my my title for a ruthless critique of all that exists is uh, in in reference to marx's phrase about what what it is that we should be doing and then the subtitle literature in an age of capitalist realism uh and i don't know if we'll get to that that phrase later but um it's just a reference to um the idea of the study of literature i probably should have put that in the title because i'm not talking about how creative writers today are writing their books but you know the study of literature in 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 our time uh ought to involve this sort of ruthless critique, uh, to use Marx's phrase. So that's where that came from. As far as the book itself, I, I confess it is quite accidental. Um, I'd never, for example, unlike many of the other things I'm, uh, I've written and, and am writing, I never really sort of planned to write such a book. And it, it, it emerged at first because of you know, a paper I gave that then became an article and then another one um, in reference to well, specifically in reference to Rita Felsky's book, The Limits of Critique, uh, which came out in 2015 and was rightly so very celebrated uh, and, and received a great deal of uh, press, even in the non-academic press. Um, and uh, I, you know, was opposed. <laughs> I took a, a, an a oppositional position towards it, as have many others. Um, I, I, I don't claim to be particularly original in my critique of post-critique, uh, and Felsky's version of post-critique in particular. But it occurred to me once I had written a couple of these articles that maybe I had enough to, to say more than more than just a couple of scattered articles uh, that a book might be worthwhile. And um, Zero Books in particular offered this opportunity to have what I think of as really a sort of a mini book. It's it's about 36,000 words, so it's not a it's not as long as, as, as most books would be, which makes it great for a kind of polemic <laughs> uh, of this sort. And I don't normally, I mean, I suppose there's a polemical strain to anything you write, because there's always a bit of an argument to be made, but um, this is the first time I've, I sort of wrote a book thinking of it as almost like, I, I guess as Nietzsche refers to the Beyond Good and Evil as a, a streichrift, you know, conflict writing, <laughs> in in the sense that it is going up against the idea of post-critique. Um, but hopefully it's also, uh, in as, as befits a kind of dialectical view, not just a, a an attack on one position, but a, a an attempt to build up and, and reinforce uh, an alternative position, which is to say, I do view critique not as it gets caric- caricatured by uh, you know a number of the post-critical uh, types as a sort of hermeneutics of suspicion only, negative, uh, you know, smug 
distant, but also a really joyful activity, a, a, a way of engaging with literature and society in, in, in a very active and enthusiastic and, and frankly, enjoyable way. Uh, you have mentioned post-critique and Richard Falsky. We'll talk more about it as, uh, throughout the interview, because I'm sure some of the listeners might not be familiar with the term post-critique or what it refers to, but you already mentioned uh, Richard Falsky's famous book, uh, Limits of Critique, and another book, I guess, she, which was an edited collection of essays, simply called Post-Critique, if I'm not mistaken, or what is Post-Critique? I don't remember the title exactly. But anyway, let's let's talk about critique. Uh, one of the <clears throat> critique in general is is associated with crisis. So there's crisis, there's critique, and as the name suggests, there's a lot of negativity around it. It's about denunciation, and that's one of the things that Rita Fosky even brings up her book that it's all about negativity. It's not about reconstruction. But anyway, uh, and and I'm a student. I was a student of literature and was a big fan of li- I still am a big fan of critique and 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 French theory and whenever I sometimes talk to my friend who are not maybe very well trained in this area I said well look you ruined the fun of everything by criticizing if there was a movie <laughs> or simply walking in the street looking at the signs I've just read Roland Barthes and yeah. I would start you know criticizing everything with serum so you were a very sad person right <laughs> so no I'm, I'm it's it's not getting me down but anyway, do you agree that we, the critique is generally associated with negativity? But in the book, you talk about critique as being a joyous activity. So, and I agree with that myself. I'm really keen to know more about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, there are a couple of things I would I would say in that regard. First of all, the, you know, there is a kind of sense, and and you know, we associate it sometimes with the Frankfurt School of you know, uh, uh, trying to reclaim the negative as something that is itself to be valued and indeed enjoyed. You know, when Marcuse wrote about the affirmative character of culture, uh, this is all the worse, I think, in the United States where we have what uh, some have called toxic positivity, where you know, we're supposed to be optimistic and happy and just, you know, turn that frown upside down all the time. Uh, yeah. um, but you know, when he when he mentioned that, he was of course criticizing culture as as being, uh, or especially you know, a lot of popular cultural forms as being ways of affirming the status quo, and and therefore, those of us who would like to see changes to the status quo ought to embrace the negative, and that was something that Marcuse talked about. Certainly Adorno talked about it and did so in a way that was much more dour and therefore made it seem (laughs) all the more uh, negative in the way that uh, Americans will use that term. You mentioned, you know, critique being associated with crisis, and it's true, I, you know, I don't have a classical background, but you know, the word crisis, at least from the Greek root, suggested, you know, uh, judgment and uh, decision and and sort of suggested a, a moment when a decision needed to be made, like a, a critical moment is, is when we have to decide. In and of itself, that's not a bad or negative thing, you know, um, needing to make a judgment, needing to make a decision uh, is it doesn't have to be uh, viewed as as uh, something we we should want to avoid. On the contrary, I, I feel that it's it's uh, a moment of uh, potential creativity, of inspiration. Uh, uh, you know, we, it's 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 a cliche, a very old cliche that you know, crisis and opportunity 
you know, uh, go together. But uh, certainly a, a certain critical attitude need not be merely, uh, you know, like uh, glum and gloomy at all times. Although I, I will add, you know, uh, that sometimes uh, you're right to be glum and gloomy when faced with intolerable things in front of you. So if if, if our uh, friends think that we're being killjoys because we're claiming of, you know, the ideological, uh, you know, baggage that accompanies some of their favorite pop culture. Hey, well, sometimes we have to be killjoys. That's just, you know, it's, you know, if, 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 <laughs> but that said, I, I also feel like so much of criticism, uh, and I'm using the term fairly broadly, it, is itself, I, I don't want to claim, as some some might, that criticism is itself a form of poetics. I, I don't mean to claim the critic is like a poet or or a creative writer. I think it is a different kind of activity, but it nevertheless involves uh, aspects of creativity, and it's it's you know it can be much like you know problem solving. You when faced with a problem. Uh, there is uh, the joyful activity of trying to figure it out and trying to figure out what to do with it. That doesn't mean that it wasn't a problem to begin with, and it doesn't mean that you might not get frustrated along the way. But it, it does mean that, you know, that that can be part of the fun of the activity. People have fun putting together puzzles. People also, I'm sure, have fun taking things apart to speak in terms of like... Uh, the, the root word uh, of analysis means to sort of take apart. Um, so that, that's kind of what I have in mind. I, I do know what you're talking about, though. I mean, I've had, I had friends in grad school, for example, who said that now that I've learned, you know, critical theory, I, I just don't have fun anymore because I feel like I have to take everything apart. You know, I can't just go watch a movie. I have to look at the gender dynamics or whatever. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, that's not, a bad thing at all that we've enlarged the levels of pleasure we we can still enjoy it but now we can also enjoy it as an intellectual puzzle or as a, again something to be analyzed uh if anything and i guess i didn't realize at the time how jamesonian this was but jameson talks about how uh, whenever he used to hear people talk about uh say marxists reducing things to the political, he said that you know what 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 Marxist theory was actually doing was enlarging it to include the political and the social and the cultural and the aesthetic and the poetic, and and he said it. I think this is a rough quote because I haven't memorized it, but he says something like it's a never-ending source of hilarity to me that this enlargement is called reduction by those who oppose it. And in, in some ways, I, I feel that way. I certainly feel like as a consumer of pop culture, and I still do enjoy a lot of things, I think, um, you know, being able to analyze them, also being able to choose not to analyze them is, 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 is part of the fun, I suppose. And uh, speaking of Marx, I really, <clears throat> at the beginning you mentioned, I asked you where the title comes from. You said it comes from the great poets. And then said Marx, <laughs> I was really uh, fascinated by that. You're absolutely right. because, And there was a recent book that has been, tra it, it's not the book, it's not recent, but I think it has been recently been translated into English, Literary Marx. It was translated by Verso. And it was published by Verso, which oh, talks yeah, about. I, I have that here somewhere. 
Yeah, yeah another one you're talking book. about. Yeah, and um, I'm going to talk to the translator soon, hopefully. I uh, have the book here. <laughs> I just have to arrange it. Is that Alberto Toscano? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Um, oh, it's 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 a fabulous uh, little book. And it's it's true. I mean, um, I, I didn't even know of this book because it came into English, so now I can mm. read it. But um, mm. uh, Marx is a beautiful prose stylist. Yes, there are some turgid sections as well. And yes, the man spent a lot of time reading Hegel and Kant and, and his shows, yeah. but uh, yeah, but there are moments of of sheer mm. beauty in his, in his mm. prose, and mm. um, you know, uh, obviously, uh, you know, nonfiction uh, certainly can have style and you know, uh, uh, literary value as well. I mean, we're we're accustomed to talking about that with novelists. And poets and playwrights, but there's no question that a, a good essayist, uh, you know, a, a, a good uh, writer can also be read, uh, you know, for pleasure, if nothing else. And mm -hmm. and I, uh, there are moments, certainly, when when Marx, yeah, reveals the poet <laughs> in him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let, let's talk about <clears throat> critique as a political vocation. In, in your book, you quote from Foucault. Uh, says the critique is the art of voluntary insubordination. Oh, what did he mean by that? And what do you mean by critique as a political vocation? Yeah, well, um, uh, Foucault in that particular essay, and it, it was written right around the same time that Foucault also wrote the um, the essay on what is enlightenment, which is on Kant's little uh, uh, editorial uh, essay called Was ist auf Aufklärung? Um, what is enlightenment? Um, uh, and and so the essay on what is critique really focuses on Kant as well. Kant is sort of a founding father for the thing called critique with the three critiques, critique of pure reason, critique of practical reason, critique of judgment. Um, and uh, when when Foucault talks about the art of voluntary in, in, insubordination, he, he speaks of um, choosing by taking what he calls the critical attitude to uh, approach uh, the systems and structures that we are faced with in an insubordinate way. Uh, now, uh, he, he also talks about it in terms of um, uh, how we uh, kind of agree to be governed and he says, uh, in in a way, the critical attitude is a virtue, as he calls it, that leads us to um, question our 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 govern uh, our our sense of being governed. And he specifically says, in an odd phrase, it's not so much anarchic where we want to not be governed at all, but just to question not be governed like that. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, I'm transcoding it a bit into literary criticism but it is the sense that what you are claiming is common sense what you are claiming is superficial what you are claiming does not need to be interpreted because it is just given is is not necessarily what someone with a critical attitude would would allow to be imposed on them as if it were the law that there is, you know, other ways of seeing this text, this uh, uh, approach to reading this, you know, and uh, and in that sense, um, Foucault uh, imagines uh, 
critique specifically well he calls it a virtue and and he 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 also calls it something that we need to cultivate uh in order to have sort of as it were virtuous citizens who are not simply going to accept what they're told they're not going to necessarily rebel against everything they're told but um are going to approach it as something to be interpreted criticized analyzed um and in that sense um i you know i mentioned that it's political i mean i i do tend to agree even though it's a bit crude to put it this way maybe it's usefully crude to put it this way like brecht talks about you know plumpus denken uh crude thinking <laughs> and that that can sometimes be very useful but when you know when somebody like Jameson or, or uh, other Marxists talk about in the final analysis it's all political, that's not just a buzzword. It's to say that these things, you know, the idea of the political needs to itself be enlarged to include the ways in which cultural um, artifacts are uh, appropriated, used, di- distributed, um, uh, the way in which what we took for granted as just just reading or 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 merely you know uh, uh what what we think of as the literal is itself part of a historical social you know cultural um set of processes uh that um may have gone differently may may have uh, affected things differently may in the future go differently um it certainly can be you know negative to go back to what we were saying about negative but in, in a way, negative that that could lead to more positive outcomes down the road by negating this, we get to that, and and that that's what I think you know Foucault kind of has in mind in in, in that essay, um, uh, in in terms of uh, the art of involuntary insubordination, of voluntary insubordination, which I thought was a very, uh, you know, elegant phrase, which is why I quoted it um, for criticism itself or, or critique itself, uh, that, that it is an art of voluntary insubordination. Mm. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm really interested to ask you more about post-critique, but before that, there's a, uh, let's say, terminology we need to, I guess, to define for our listeners or viewers, which is capitalist realism. Mm. Um I'm keen to know what it means. And then you go on to talk about how capitalism has, or the capitalist system has sort of stifled or limited our imaginative powers that we can't think of any alternative or anything beyond with, with the status quo. So can you tell us what capital capitalist realism is and how does this capitalist system, uh, uh, how does it, um, let's say, manage to kind of limit our, or stifle our imaginative powers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the the phrase itself, capitalist realism, is credited and and rightly so to the late Mark Fisher, who wrote a book published with zero books. So in in one way, I'm sort of honoring him uh, in in uh, multiply uh, in multiple ways. But uh, published with zero books uh, in 2009 or 10, I believe, called capitalist realism. Is there no alternative? I'm I'm not nuts about the the phrase itself, partly because I think realism uh, is is much more uh, complex and nuanced than than as it's being used there. But it is a pithy and succinct way of getting at the the by now uh, almost cliched uh, remark about how it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, um, which uh, Jameson. 
uh, and Zizek are both credited with, as well as Mark Fisher uh, and others, perhaps. Um, uh, I noticed, I, I noted at, at some point that, uh, you know, Jameson said something like it first, and then Zizek actually cited Jameson when he said it. So it's, uh, I guess Jameson gets credit, but uh, recently even Jameson has, has used the phrase, as someone once said, <laughs> as if he doesn't even want to put his name on it anymore. It's such a cliche. But the, uh, the it is a cliche, and it's probably a, a, a sign of our own dystopian times that it is such a cliche. But part of the point um, uh, when Jameson used the phrase was that we once had a time in the 19th century, for example, and, and through parts of the 20th century, when imagining new societies, whether we want to call that utopian or not, uh, was uh, very common and, and indeed part of the mainstream among politicians, social reformers, uh, revolutionaries, obviously, and that um, you know what what Fisher calls capitalist realism has has, has got us to the point where it, we just can't imagine that anymore. That it's not even worth trying to imagine that this is reality. This is the the world. And uh, to be honest, I mean, I wrote this in something that is now, I guess, forthcoming. My next book, but it, it's to the point that we not only can't imagine, you know, uh, a, a new social system, but it, it, it's becoming harder and harder, at least in the United States, to imagine uh, minor modifications that would make our lives better, like better roads and bridges or health care or modest gun control <laughs> proposals or things like this. It seems unrealistic to even suggest. I, I also point out, of course, that when Jameson used that phrase, uh, the phrase that that became something like, uh, it's easier to imagine the, the end of the world than the end of capitalism, he, he ends that clause with a semicolon. The sentence isn't over yet. Jameson has long sentences, as you know. But the rest of the sentence goes quite succinctly, perhaps that has something to do with our imagination. And I always thought that that was essential to the whole cliche. It's not that we can't imagine uh, the end of capitalism, it's that our imagination has been so, I, I use the term innervated, it has been you know, taken, the power has been taken away so that we're encouraged not to imagine, we may not have the uh, imaginative faculties anymore to imagine a, a, a fully you know, communist or you know, something like that society other than the you know uh, already existing forms that we've seen, uh, Stalinism or Cuba or whatever, China today perhaps. Um, but um, the, again, it's the lack of the imagination that that um, that Jameson was getting at in in 1994 when he when he wrote that, more than the idea that uh, this is simply a fact of our time that we need to do something about. Um, learning how to imagine better, uh, uh, perhaps. Um, so capitalist realism, that, that, that's where the, the term comes from, and, and it's also where um, Mark Fisher is going with it. I, I chose that as a term to use in my subtitle and, and, and in this book, in part to honor Mark Fisher uh, and to suggest that, yeah, we, we need critique to help us uh, invigorate the imagination 
to to imagine alternatives to the status quo. And uh, I, I guess uh, this is a perfect segue to the next question I have, which is post-critique. So in a way, post-critique is yeah, maybe maybe it's not the right way to put it to simply get rid of critique, but it's very critical of critique. They're saying that, well, I'll leave it to you to sort of define post-critique because I know it's very difficult. I once talked yeah. to someone who had written an article in that book, Post-Critique, which was edited by Rui Tofelsky, and he did say it's a difficult term to to, to to define because it's more defined by why what it is not rather than what it is. But anyway, so tell us briefly what your understanding of post-critique is, and then you make the argument that or a lot of people have made this argument that in a way post-critique is a trend that is more aligned with this whole neoliberal uh way of or getting rid of humanities that's a defunding humanities stop criticizing the status quo so in a way this is more in literary studies new critique post-critique is an is is aligned with that trend uh is, is that the right way of put it or putting it I, th I think it is to to a certain extent. I mean, I also think it is inadvertent. I mean, I don't. I know that Rita Felsky and and many of the people that admire her work are not anti-humanities. Uh, you know, although she she has published on how she has sociologist envy and that she wishes she could go back and be a sociologist, presumably instead of a humanist uh, and literary scholar. So. Uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe, but um, I, I don't. I don't have a, actually a personal grudge at, at all with with uh, Professor Felsky, uh, who, who I know and like. Um, but I, I do feel that this this uh, uh, post critique that she has popularized and and sort of been the leading kind of uh, flag bearer for um, uh, does have ties to uh, the what we associate with neoliberalism. Obviously, we could talk for hours about what that word means, uh, given its, uh, uh, you know, contested uh, uh, definitions and whatnot. But um, to go back to sort of what is post-critique, I mean, I associated, um, uh, and again, I, Felsky cites this in, in one of her first footnotes in that book, The Limits of Critique, that this is uh, part of a, a, a trend in the United States, within English departments at least, it got called, you know, referred to as the method wars, uh, whether or not you're going to skim the surface or uh, look, dig deep into, uh, you know, uh, latent meanings uh, beneath the manifest content. Um, uh, y you know, um, uh, Steve Marcus and, and Sher uh, Stephen Bast and Sharon Marcus uh, uh, coined the, the phrase surface reading uh, uh, or popularized that somewhat earlier. Uh, often Eve uh, Sedgwick is cited for her paranoid versus reparative reading uh, essay in the 90s. Um, even my uh, uh, beloved and she is beloved. She's one of my favorite teachers ever. Um, former professor um, uh, from undergraduate days, Toro Moy, with her Revolution of the Ordinary, which I believe you discussed with her, right? Or did you have a conversation about Revolution no, of the Ordinary? No, not no, not with her. I haven't had the chance to talk to her. Oh, well, I recommend it at any rate. But I mean, uh, that book is on Wittgenstein and uh, and a kind of neo-pragmatism uh, of Stanley Cabell and others. But 
I, 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 I mentioned her only because uh, she too, in, in her sort of approach, has embraced a kind of uh, post-critical uh, position. I believe she has an essay in the in the critique post critique book that you cited that is co-edited by uh, Felsky and Elizabeth Anker. Anker, um, uh, uh, part of the argument, um, uh, to be honest, I, I I I'll mention Stephen Best and Sharon uh, Marcus again. The uh, essay uh, and the special issue of I think it was representations that they uh, edited. Um, in which they popularized the term surface reading was called the way we read now. And there is a, a, a kind of generational element to it. You know, the people born in the late fifties or early sixties versus people like Frederick Jameson born in the thirties. Fred is 89 now. Um, uh, and uh, the way we read now was specifically cast as well that's the way those guys did it back in the 70s you know but nowadays we do it this way well um as bruce robbins has pointed out and i i you know i i i'm sure i quote him in the book uh a phrase like that much like the bruna latour uh famous title has critique run out of steam or why has critique run out of steam you know has the function of the old joke about like when did you stop beating your wife uh, Bruce Robin says, you know, it, it's a leading question that suggests you're already on the side of of the people who are asking the question. Otherwise, you're a bad person. Um, if you uh, assume critique has already run out of steam, then obviously those of us who are pro-critique are, are wasting our time. <laughs> um, and similarly, the way we read now suggests that anybody who doesn't read like us must be pretty damn old-fashioned. Uh, to keep reading the way those old guys do. Um, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, again, I cite this in the book, but um, uh, that particular essay emerged from a, a conference uh, event, uh, I think of the ACLA, I'm not sure, the American Comparative Literature Association, um, uh, which was nominally to discuss the 25th anniversary of Jameson's The Political Unconscious, which is credited or blamed by a lot of the post-critique types as being, um, you know, the source of this uh, approach to literature that involves the hermeneutics of suspicion. Felsky in her book cites it as the source but uh, in fairness, she doesn't so much blame Jameson as blame everybody who followed in his wake, um, you know, that his book launched a thousand dissertations or whatever. Uh, but there is this sense that, yeah, that's the old fashioned way of reading. We don't do that anymore. Um, in, in our time, we, we uh, are aware that the surface itself, mere reading, thin description, um, uh, and again, po post critique um, are are more valuable. To to mention uh, Falsky's own use of post critique, you're right. I mean, it, it's she acknowledges. I mean, she knows full well that the critique of critique is a kind of critique. So she she realizes that you know you can't you can't simply uh, say that you're anti critique or something like that. But what what she ends up doing is characterizing critique as an attitude. In fact, one of her uh, terms that she uses is critiquiness, 
you know, an attitude towards reading the text that is critique um, which she associates with, uh, unfortunately, I mean, she associates with a kind of ad hominem attack, but not against any particular person, just this, uh, I consider, straw figure that is smug, arrogant, distant, above the text, you know, looking down on it, uh, thinking he, I assume it's gendered he, it doesn't have to be, but um, is you know smarter than the uh the 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 writer or the text itself or the mere lay reader who doesn't get the deep insights she you know falls in love with the phrase hermeneutics of suspicion which she duly cites you know paul recour for um coining uh recour is said to have coined the term the term doesn't ex ex uh, doesn't happen in the book exactly in that phrase. He talks about masters of suspicion in his book that in English is called Freud and philosophy. In French, it's called on interpretation. Um, but uh, he names Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche as the masters of suspicion. And he discusses the idea that there's a, a suspicious hermeneutics that... Um, uh, mistrust, hence the suspicion of the surface, versus a kind of hermeneutics of uh, faith or revelation that looks at the surface also as something in need of interpretation, in fact, in need of deep interpretation, but in the sense that it will reveal, you know, the will of God or something like that, a much more faithful approach. And so for Ricoeur, it, these are just two ways of approaching interpretation uh, neither one is bad. He certainly doesn't suggest that Freud or Marx or Nietzsche are doing it wrong as opposed to. Whereas Felsky uh, adopts this term suspicion as if it is itself bad and that and she doesn't embrace the term faith. She doesn't necessarily want to characterize post-critique as a more faithfully religious way of reading, um, uh, maintaining her own secularism. But she does this, you know, caricature the critic um, who is suspicious as, uh, you know, someone who doesn't trust to uh, the spirit of the text itself and is always seeking something uh, deeper. She uses the image of digging deep um, or otherwise, you know, hidden. You know the idea that what what is visible is 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 not valued. Now I, I you know again I don't want to get into the whole argument, but even the most you know suspicious of the hermeneutics of suspicion still involves careful close reading of the surface. Indeed, nobody is uh, you know saying I'll forget what the book says. Here's what it really means. On the contrary, I you know I think that um, uh, close attention to the formal aspects of the text or, or what's going on, uh, perhaps even more so than in a lot of the surface reading in the sense that I think some surface readers are nervous about paying too meticulous and too detailed attention to the formal, lest it start to look like deep interpretation again. Um, and, uh, you know, I... I, I I don't, I don't want to, you know, get into the polemic too much, but certainly a literal interpretation is still an interpretation. 
Yeah. So for all of the idea that, uh, well, we're not going to dig deep, uh, we're just going to take it literally. Well, you're either, you know, uh, obfuscating uh, the fact that to be commonsensical, to just read it, to have the literal literal meaning of the words um, is itself an interpretive act and, and one that requires the same kind of uh, critical activity that uh, we associate with literary criticism and interpretation. Mm. Um, uh, you're either obfuscating that or, or, or just you missed that. Um, but that's where, uh, to, to get back to your, your, your question, I, I think it can lend itself to a, a kind of neoliberal uh, sensibility, which, uh, you know, in economics and in politics has a sense of the laissez-faire, uh, just let, let it happen, don't, don't regulate it, don't, don't try to interfere with it, uh, as it, as it operates naturally. Um, uh, there's also, um, a sense of individual, um, responsibility so that we don't look at structures and systems. We only imagine that the individual acting as he or she will, uh, will somehow, um, arrive at the right or wrong thing. So you, your reading is as good as any, certainly any experts reading or any English department's reading or anything like that. Uh, Bruce Robbins, again, has suggested that this can lead not only to mere fandom, mm-hmm. although I quickly point out if any of us look at like fan websites and whatnot, those people are critical. They They, they know how to do hardcore criticism for sure but you know um uh, i you know fandom or or you know a, a version of fandom which is just pr pr for the company involved you know uh let's let's just celebrate uh, what disney has given us and shut the hell up otherwise you know because we liked it and therefore there's no reason to to uh analyze it uh, any further um, you know, I'm I'm sure that uh, there are companies, uh, especially in 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 the uh, business of literature today, that would gladly pay for surface readers to just merely read their books and <laughs> and and not analyze them at all, as as part of what a, a PR campaign would would look like. Now, again, I'm not saying that's what the, you know, Felsky herself does or whatnot. There, there are no examples in any of the three books, really, I think, that she associates with the trilogy now, the uses of literature, um, the limits of critique, and uh, her 20-volume 20, uh, 20 Hooked, that give examples of how that reading would happen. And it's okay. I'm not saying that she should. Um, because that's not what she's she's after, but it, it's also true that uh, you know Sedgwick in her paranoid versus reparative reading didn't really show us exactly what a reparative reading would look like either, um, and so much of mere reading or surface reading, uh, as I say, if it if it is a method, it's it's a method of just saying, well, here's what the text says. Uh, enough said uh just describe it rather than interpret it um that's a that's a wikipedia plot summary that's that's not um certainly not literary criticism mm. well uh 
there were a lot of great points you raised. <laughs> I was just taking notes. First of all, with Sedgwick, I, I read that article three or four times, and God, that was brutal. It was very difficult for me to understand it. I talked to a lot of people, but I got the main points, but you're right. And I was really fascinated by the argument she was making. Um, but yeah, I, I ended up asking myself, okay, what is that reparative reading? And when I did my PhD, I started working on, as I mentioned, eco-criticism and Gothic literature. And she had a book on Gothic literature. I started reading the book, first chapter, I put it aside. It was the first year of my PhD and I couldn't understand the argument. It was just not making much sense but she has a very difficult style of writing so which is setting an up post critique and it's kind of ironic that she's uh sort of you know hailed as person who sort of started this whole uh trend of post critique and again speaking of bruno latour i again to, it was towards the end of my phd i was simply stuck i didn't know how to get out of this argument i was making i didn't have the right theoretical language and i found latour and i was writing on uh, Frankenstein, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and eco-criticism and the whole idea of Anthropocene. So it was, it was to me, he was like a savior. I wrote, uh, and I, I think it turned out to be the best chapter of my thesis. And the, yeah. the reviewers also highlighted that. But again, after I graduated, I started reading more about affect theory and Latourian reading, and I started to become more and more critical of this trend of Latourian reading of humanities in general, because, well, it's, it's again, sort of siding itself with this status quo. But anyway, it's a whole different argument. And uh, when I, again, read the book, books written by Risa Felsky, I was looking for examples of that post-critique. I was fascinated by the argument. I found myself nodding. Yes, it's with negativity. Yes, there's this hermeneutics of suspicion. So let's see what's this new way now. How can I read literature? And I was into affect studies, and there was a collection of uh, essays on on, on actual application of that theory into literature. I started reading a couple of articles. So well, how is it different from, let's say, a formalistic way of reading literature? You're not really offering anything new here, and you're absolutely right. I couldn't find any applicable examples. Simply, they're using the language of critique to criticize critique without really offering the new way out. Well, and and yeah, I mean, this is a big part of my my criticism of Felsky's book, the the limits of critique, is that frankly she doesn't give examples of what she's um, attacking either. Not discrete examples where you quote the actual text of somebody doing it. She mentions Jemison, as I say, but she doesn't go to chapter you know, four of that book and examine his close reading of, of George Gissing's novels or his chapter on Conrad or anything. She just mentions the political unconscious and the idea of, uh, you know, hermeneutics of, of um, suspicion. Um, uh, again, I'm not saying that she needed to, but the, the, the critique critic <laughs> that she's opposed to is a straw man throughout the book. She always refers to him as, you know, someone who is smug and distant and all of this. But again, there's no example. She doesn't say, here, let's take a look at Eagleton's book on, you know, this. Or, you know, she she uh, it, 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 it's very hard, I found, to write about because, uh, you know, she, you're right, she assumes her audience already agrees with her. 
I brought this up with a grad student I, I encountered uh, at, at the MLA, uh, Modern Language Association Conference, one year. And I just said, you know, who are the because this person was very pro Falski and had come up to talk to me after the talk. I said, who are the people who are actually doing this? And he said, well, I don't, I don't even think I had to name them. I just assume that's the way it's done. It's like, well, I can't think of any critics, certainly no critics I admire, uh, who do what what this is. I mean, if if nothing else, Jamison, who again gets cited all the time as as one of the figures, uh, if not the figure that has caused this problem, at least as one of the the figures who has who has popularized the hermeneutics of suspicion of paranoid reading or something like that in part with the very idea of the political unconscious and this mix of Marx and Freud and, and Nietzsche too, to a certain extent, in his critique of, of, of moralizing. Um, uh, what They cite Jameson, they cite that concept, they cite the, the idea that he's engaged in a kind of paranoid reading. But then when they, you look at his actual articles or books, nobody is saying that's what he does. I mean, Jameson is a a very, if I can say it this way, I mean, he's a very generous reader. I mean, one of the things that he insists upon is that no writer be dismissed. He wrote a book about Wyndham Lewis called, you know, Fables of Aggression, Wyndham Lewis, or The Modernist as Fascist. He devotes an entire relatively short book to a fascist because he finds in that person's work elements worthy of discussion, elements worthy, in fact, of uh, embraced by Marxists and, and whatnot. If, if anything, he is not someone who is dismissive of writers, certainly not for their politics um, uh, or their political views, but also not for the quality of their prose or, you know, the the interesting nature of their characters or something. He's a, he's a very generous a reader, and in in part that that goes to his own theory of literature, which is that one can't be moralizing about this. One has to see in any given text, including the most ideological texts, I guess, uh, elements. He calls them utopian elements, but elements of something we would call positive or valuable. And um, and indeed, I, I I think he said this. I don't know if he said it in interviews or if. I just heard him say it or heard someone quote it, but, you know, he suggested that if you, you find a text that you don't think has any value um, artistically or politically or whatever, that may have more to do with the way you're reading it than the text itself. Like you need to be open to its possibilities, um, you know, and, and in that sense, I would say that the caricature of the critic the critique critic that we get in some of the writings about post-critique is absolutely, not only is it is it not an accurate description of the uh, proponents of critique that we know, but it, 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 it may be, you know, not even close, like the opposite of the way they actually approach the text. Now, that's not to say, I'm sure there are critics who are like, this is bad, you know, this is, you know, uh, sexist or racist or classist or whatever, and and therefore should be condemned. But I don't think you see that a lot um, in academic literary criticism. If anything, I think you would see that far more in um, 
uh, journalism and, and other fields that uh, are do not consider themselves part of that hermeneutics of suspicion to begin with. And, uh, and, and you, you know, the more recent, especially in the United States, there has been this sort of rise of anti-theory. A lot of people, without even having read Derrida, Foucault, uh, yeah. simply lambast all critical race theories, bad post. It's all postmodernist fault. Fault. And then we have people like, uh, you know, I call them pseudo intellectuals on, on on the internet, YouTube stars. Uh, yeah. I'm fortunate I forgot him and Jordan Peterson. Yeah. So, oh, it was all Foucault and Derrida. And I yeah, right. think that <laughs> this trend of post critique inadvertently, of course, not not consciously, but inadvertently are joining forces with these groups. They are just saying basically the same thing, but maybe in a more stylish language. I personally think we we there has never been a time that we needed more that we needed critical theory more than now because we have the rise of you know all these fake news, alternative facts, and also digital information. People have access to loads and loads of information, which is uh not I mean not in and of, in and of itself a good thing because we also need that criticality to be able to sift through all this information to see which one is valid, which uh which one isn't. So I, I kind of feel that. Uh, they, they, it could be the perfect, let's say, battle <laughs> uh, for to get uh, to to be together. This anti-humanities and 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 also post critique in a way. No, I completely agree. I mean, there's there's a common joke. I'm sure you know you and and others have heard about you know whenever the uh, politicians start to talk about how uh, students are being indoctrinated into left wing ideas. Um, we always joke, uh, but like all jokes, there's a great element of truth to it, which is, you know, I, I can't even get the students to read the syllabus, much less, you know, become Marxists. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> it's not like we actually have that kind of power. Would would that Foucault and Derrida did have that kind of power over uh, over the masses, you know? Um, no, I don't. Yeah, you know, I I don't think so. I, you know, I, Jordan Peterson, of course, has, has proved over and over again that he hasn't read any of these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever he's actually called uh, to describe even uh, the most rudimentary, again, Wikipedia entry style version. I'm not bad mouthing Wikipedia, by the way, which does a, does a pretty good job, I think. But I just mean summaries as opposed to reading the primary text. Mm-hmm. Even there, he proves that he just doesn't know what he's talking about. But I will give uh, the right-wingers credit um, uh, in this. They recognize that uh, their talking points are effective. You know, Chris Rufo, uh, 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 who is now uh, one of the great darlings of the right and fashions himself as if he were an intellectual. He is uh, now a key uh, uh, advisor to Governor DeSantis in Florida and one of the architects of the overthrow of the uh, new university college there. Um, But he, in in an interview, uh, took credit for popularizing among the right the idea of critical race theory as the thing that is coming to you know get your children or whatever you know the ghoul that uh, that you know universities uh, let loose on the society and in this interview that i i read he he said you know the beauty of the phrase is that every single one of the words by themselves even if nobody's ever heard them used in in that order 
um, are negative words for most Americans. Most Americans don't like critical. They think critical means negative and bad, and they don't like people who are critical. Race, they don't want to talk about race. They want to think race is, you know, solved and is gone away. And of course, theory, no American ever liked theory. Americans are pragmatists. They hate the very word theory. <laughs> and so even without getting into what critical race theory might be, he more or less admitted that, yeah, just using the phrase critical race theory is going to, you know, make people mad. And therefore, it was brilliant of me to promote this on his, I guess, radio shows or whatever. Um, uh, similarly, of course, the idea that, you know, uh, critical theory, I guess he's got a new book out now where he cites critical theory as something that was invented by the Frankfurt School uh, uh, and, and other, you know, cultural Marxists and that Marcusa, then leading the new left in the in the 60s, has led to all of this. Uh, problems today. I, I suspect that um, there's enough truth to the history of Marcuse's influence on the new left um, to make that sound credible. Uh, that said, I, I don't know that um, Marcuse is, in fact, as uh, as influential as uh, uh, as the the alt right would like to think he is when they want to lambast cultural Marxism and in American life uh, uh, and American higher education today. I know very few English professors, for example, who've ever read Marcuse. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe it's because of the, the circles, um, you know, I, I find myself in uh, at my own university, very few people read theory. Um, uh, this is not something I actually would want to get into too much, but I, I, I think it's probably worth mentioning as a kind of footnote. It's true that many of these debates about um, post-critique and whatnot have, have only happened at um, relatively elite institutions. Um, nothing against any of those institutions, but I doubt that it actually affects my, my school at all as a non-research institution in Central Texas. Um, I don't think most of my colleagues have even heard of these method wars. Um, I know that our students haven't, um, and uh, so likely it's, uh, you know, tempest in a teapot uh, to a certain extent. That said, as as with your bringing up uh, the ways in which these ideas ha have, um, in, in whatever bastardized versions, found their way into the public sphere and into political discourse, um, these these things do, uh, of course, have ramifications beyond uh, their intended audiences. Um, obviously, it's going to get changed when it moves from one sphere to another, um, simplified, uh, you know, uh, adulterized in other ways. Um, uh, and I suspect that, um, you know, the limited purview of these debates. I talk about this in my introduction because I, I, for one, despite my bombastic title about for a ruthless critique of all that exists, I know that, you know, a debate among a bunch of English professors is probably not going to affect people that much. Um, so my concern is largely about, you know, uh, the study of literature at the university level uh, and uh, how we approach the idea of literature. Um, for us, that's a very narrow field. 
but as as you see, it 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 it, it partakes of this larger discussion when it comes to the value of the humanities more generally. In fairness, you know, Felsky says this, as do some of the others, that um, she believes that by getting us away from theory, getting us away from critique, uh, we're more likely to um, satisfy the demands of those who think that critical theory has ruined literature in the way we discussed at the very beginning of the interview. You know, we uh, us elite professors are wrecking the enjoyment of just how fun it is to read Wuthering Heights and to wonder, you know, what, what's going on with Heathcliff and whatnot. Um, and, uh, and therefore, uh, a post-critical attitude would somehow support um, the humanities because more people would want to embrace it. I, I don't think that that's true. I, I, I really don't. I think, if nothing else, uh, the post-critical attitude, uh, if nothing else, uh, says something like, why have professors at all if simply your personal enjoyment uh, is what really matters? And you don't need the expertise of someone with a background in Victorian culture. You don't need the expertise of someone with a history and theory of the novel. You don't need the expertise of someone who knows something about the Brontes. Um, just read Weathering Heights on your own. In fact, uh, download it on your on your phone and read it in your spare time because you don't need a humanities background at all to do this. Uh, only those critiquey critics who want to look into context. Felsky actually has a chapter called Context Stinks in that book, uh, which is only slightly better than uh, her chapter called Critique, where there are three R's in the word critique, because I assume we're supposed to growl as we read it. Um, but uh, you know, uh, that seems to me to be a very good argument to defund literature programs entirely. If, if I were a, a literate politician, maybe one who had majored in English before going off to grad school, and I read The Limits of Critique, I would think, good Lord, we need to get rid of these English professors entirely. We need to maybe just let uh, English majors read on their own, give them study hall for four years, uh, and get them the hell away from people who claim to be experts in the field. Uh, now, again, I know that that's not what Felsky meant or what other literature professors uh, uh, who share her views mean, but it certainly seems like a reasonable uh, surmise for someone who's already looking to cut uh, programs that aren't uh, considered productive. Uh, there is another question that I have, which is, again, about these new trends in literary studies. Uh, but you were well aware that sometimes you know humanities are criticized because what they say is simply polemical and they say it's not really science because they don't really have a method so more recently there has been not maybe conscious efforts but there has been a shift towards a more science-like method in literary studies some people use evolutionary psychology and i was in auckland um god i'm it's it's kind of early in the morning. I can't remember the name. One of the big names in, in evolutionary psychology was in Auckland University. And one of my office mates was actually working on evolutionary psychology. And we always argued. We had nothing in common. <laughs> we were good friends, but we had nothing in common in terms of literary studies. To him, yeah. everything was DNA based on science. This is what evolutionary psychology is telling us. But the funny thing is that there are a lot of evolutionary psychologists who actually are aware of the shortcomings of this this method but anyway he was like a new convert 
uh, evolution psychology has given me all the responses and <laughs> against anything and humanities because they had no method. And there has been, again, this kind of digital, this trend, digital humanities. Yeah. Uh, using um, big data, using computer algorithms to an analyze large, large corpus of literary text. Uh, and again, you can refresh my mind. You know the big names are. Uh, sure, sure. Yeah. So there was this lab, I guess, in, in Stanford, literary lab. Um, yeah, uh, Franco Moretti. Yes, Moretti. Uh, and his, I forget his lab there. Yeah, I read some of the articles. To me, I must be honest, I, it was fascinating to see all these diagrams. And yeah, it was a new way of interpreting a text. But I guess the whole idea of uh, data-driven analysis of text didn't really take off. And uh, he sort of did admit it in a way. So what do you think of these new so-called maybe... Do, do you think it's a part of that consumerist culture that we need to commodify even everything even literary studies look this is the new trend that we are doing in this <laughs> university we're using computers big data and literary text medical humanities is another example example yeah well i i have i have thoughts as you might imagine um uh, it's true that uh you know i i suspect some of this just goes back to you you know as you were saying uh the the effort of professional literary critics 100 years ago Often, uh, I. Richards' practical criticism is cited as one of the first works of theory in this regard, um, attempting to, uh, I, I don't want to say make literary criticism uh, or literary study more scientific per se, but to make it at least more methodological and regular so that it's not simply a matter of like tastes. You know, I've, I've, I've read, for example, that, uh, you know, at the late 19th century, if you were studying literature, you know, you might um, discuss whether or not Milton was a doughty spirit or, you know, things like that. But there was no real analysis of the text. Um, and obviously, I.A. Richards and arguably the new critics, for example, by having a, a more kind of meticulous idea of what close literary analysis uh, would entail. Uh, again, I wouldn't call it science envy. I know some people have called it that, but just a, a desire to show that there is some kind of rigor and it's not merely a matter of um, personal taste and whatnot, but that there are things going on. Gesundheit. Um, uh, I also think, of course, since I'm going back in time so long of, you know, C.P. Snow's famous two cultures business about uh, um science versus uh, i guess what we would call the humanities which was never um which was never a fair fight i mean if you actually read that essay you see that he's pro science all the way and he he, he doesn't say they're two equal cultures he basically uses his concept of two equal cultures to take sides and to uh, demean one in favor of the other um but i you know i can see the notion of uh, wanting to seem more like what we're doing is like what they're doing over in the science part of the university partly for the like you said the kind of practical reason of uh we're constantly being asked certainly in in, in my time i've only been a professor since 2007 but you know to justify what it is you do well, the, the many of the sciences can justify it, um, honestly, without trying, because uh, they don't have to justify it. We live in a country that believes science is valuable. 
uh, especially if it's pragmatic. I think engineering, especially. I, I'm not one of those humanities guys, by the way, that is anti-STEM. In, in fact, I'm very worried that the same things that we're seeing with the humanities being defunded is actually happening in some of the STEM areas, especially mathematics. A lot of schools noting that math is not a popular major are getting rid of it or just letting adjuncts teach the intro to math classes that they need their engineers to take, but they have no interest in having theoretical mathematicians on the faculty. Uh, I think physics is also finding that and, and some of the other certainly uh, sciences that deal with theory um, the technology, yes, so long as it can be monetized. Engineering, yes, so long as it remains uh, a practical applied science. But I think the S and the M in STEM are also somewhat precarious. Um, uh, so the idea that humanities would save itself by allying itself or, or uh, adjoining itself to something in the sciences. Ah, we do medical humanities. You can't get rid of the med school, so you can't get rid of us. You know? <laughs> uh, may not entirely uh, work. Um, my wife, uh, not, not, not to get personal, but my wife is a, a neuroscientist, and she was somewhat amused to, to learn that there is a field of people using cognitive neuroscience uh, related to literature um, she thought it was really dumb, but I suspect she would probably think that, you know, a Freudian approach to literature is kind of too Freud being a different kind of scientist uh, that has also been vastly uh, important to cultural studies and, and literary and media studies. So, um, you know, I don't want to uh, be completely dismissive of it, but it did seem like a fad. I mean, cognitive neuroscience is a relatively new field. Cognitive Neuroscience Society was founded in the 80s. Um, uh, so it, it seems like, you know, an attempt to glom on to uh, this hip new scientific area. At the Stanford Lab, they actually did, like, literally put students, subjects in an fMRI machine to look at their brains while they're reading poetry or while poetry is being read to them or something like that to show, you know, which parts of the brain light up <laughs> when when they hear a metaphor or something like that hey i'm okay with that that sounds like a cool experiment i just don't know that that's the future of literary criticism or the future of uh, you know uh the neuroscience for that matter um Mm. Uh, my wife has, has pointed out that some neuroscientists refer to the whole fmri fad as the the new phrenology because it just seems to be doing what 19th century phonologists did, but, you know, inside the brain instead of with lumps on the head. Um, it's, you know, they're, they're generating a great deal of data. They don't quite know what it means yet. And that's good. That's what science does. That's what it's supposed to do. But the problem is non-scientists get hold of it and they assume Ah, we got this data, therefore this is the conclusion. Mm. And Moretti, I cite him in the book. Moretti actually said this, you know, when he retired, I guess a couple of years ago, he did a, a, in, in, in the context of a, a book that had just come out, I guess an interview with the New York Times, and he also in the PMLA, I think, um, so I don't remember which one I'm quoting from here, but he says something like, 
you know, in our zeal to look at this technology, including the the big data sets and the, you know, Google books and the digital humanities and what he called distant reading, right? Um, he, he noted that we generated a great deal of data and it was really interesting data to analyze, but we lost sight of theory and that we need theory to truly make sense of this. And so he himself, at, at the moment of his retirement, after 20 years of basically getting away from theory to play scientists out of Stanford, uh, I don't mean to, that as dismissively as that came off, but I mean, he, he himself was not a scientist, uh, even though he was uh, happily in, engaging with sciences uh, to do his readings. Um, but even he recognized that, you know, with, without theory, what we were saying was largely meaningless and that we were uh, producing bad conclusions because we were jumping to conclusions from data that needed to be theorized. Um, that's coming from, you know, the guy himself. I would also point out, since, you know, you mentioned the spatiality book, you know, he had written a really important book in sort of spatial literary studies called The Atlas of the 19th Century American Novel, uh, 19th Century Novel. Um, uh, and and uh, that's, you know, when he was interested in using maps as a way to help read um, literature. He had always dabbled with the sciences and social sciences, so geography was not odd he had also written on sociology of literature uh, earlier in his career but um it, it seems that moving uh, this is going to sound more cynical than i mean it to but he was at columbia university when he was doing that work in new york city old school east coast ivy league bastion he moves to stanford new school tech you know silicon valley high tech you know <laughs> One of my colleagues at Stanford said every freshman comes in with app ideas because, you know, the idea is that you, you know, ideally you, 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 you can drop out and become a millionaire before graduating from Stanford because you're in the heart of Silicon Valley. I, I feel like, you know, his turn to the digital humanities uh, and to big data and to uh, kind of entrepreneurial uh, approach to literary studies did coincide somewhat with his being at Silicon Valley during during the height of the rise of the Googles and the Twitters. <laughs> so, and like I said, that comes off more cynical than I mean it to. But I think you're right. It's glomming on to big business and uh, commercial uh, stuff and, and then trying to use that to justify the value of the humanities. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that that will work. I, I do feel that the more we tell our enemies that we are valuable and here it's measurable, we can show you how we're valuable, uh, the more they'll say, well, let's see that spreadsheet. Let's see it quarterly. Let's see what you've done for us in the last quarter. They'll treat us like uh, skeptical shareholders at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a business meeting. And, and I don't think that's the path we want to go down to, to claim that our, our quarterly outputs are what uh, will show that literary studies are valuable. Mm. I think playing into that game will only destroy us faster. Yeah. Um, I have <laughs> an, another question here, which I guess I, I, I ask anyone who is into humanities this question into humanities and theory. Well, when we talk about crisis in humanities, there's one thing that we can't really ignore. And that's the fact that 
the language we use, that critical language we use. And that's one of the arguments that Richard Felsky also makes, which I think is a valid one. We have lost that connection with the public. Whereas, for example, back before 1960s or 50s, the Marxists, the leftists wrote pamphlets. They distributed these pamphlets in front of factories or different organizations. They had all these big, sorry, small communities. They connected with the public in many different ways. But now that language or they say this group of people has moved into academia so they have the elites the the academia but they have lost that connection with the public and the right wingers have been more successful because they have the television they they use a language which is populist sure. uh, but they have been able to make that connection with the public so why do you think this has come about and what's the way out of it yeah well i i i agree with all of that although i i will say that um, when we see this critique um, of, you know, the the left and especially the cultural left uh, having moved into academe, um, it's often presented as if that's a, a failing on our part, those of us who are academics, uh, as if it were a matter of choice that we decided, oh, I don't want the masses to read my books. I only want, you know, Fred Jameson's personal students to be able to read it. Nobody does that. Um, the culture has changed. The society has changed. You mentioned the right-wing takeover of, te you know, TED television and other media. Um, you know, the fact is there were critics, including very academic critics, who could somehow, I'm thinking of somebody like Lionel Trilling, say, uh, in the 40s and 50s, had immense uh, influence in the public uh, sphere, not just because they would occasionally write for the New York Times, but because their works, which were every bit as much works of theory and criticism as anything Jameson has ever written, um, were being consumed uh, in a marketplace that, that still allowed for that sort of stuff. At the risk of being way too reductive, and I don't want to be way too reductive, but television has a big part of it. You know, uh, one of my books is on Vonnegut, and, and Vonnegut has complained that, you know, he made a steady living in the 50s writing short stories that were not, he himself admits, they weren't very good. But the magazines that published them paid very well for him because there was a marketplace for new short stories. He he sold a bunch of them to a magazine called Cosmopolitan, which you've probably heard of, but it is not known for its literary offerings, not in the last 50 years. But um, the, I, the market was undoubtedly somewhat the same, that uh, women, housewives, whatever, would want to read a story, you know, when they had some spare time. And so uh, these short, short stories were in great demand and glossy magazines like that would pay what today would be the equivalent of like five or six thousand dollars for a story because there was a market for that um and it went away because of television like you, we don't need to sit around the hearth reading the saturday evening post uh to our children uh we'll just turn on the tv and and the short stories he wrote were basically like sitcom episodes anyhow they were very short they resolved themselves at the end you know um but I, I mentioned that just to say he, as an artist and as a writer, is complaining about a change in the marketplace and the culture that had nothing to do with his choice to then become a novelist. He had to write novels because nobody would publish his short stories anymore. And of course, the world of short stories even today is largely 
um, with the exception of a handful of major uh, places like the New Yorker, mostly these are run by MFA programs. Uh, and so they too have retreated into academe, if you want to put it that way. Uh, so much of uh, the fiction itself now needs the uh, sinecure, the utopian space, as, as Said called it, of the university to survive. Because if there weren't MFA programs for a lot of authors to teach in, and and uh, MFA programs publishing their own journals for them to publish in, uh, a lot of this stuff would be hard to find mainstream publishers for in the way that, you know, Faulkner, who also, of course, was dirt poor when he was starting out, uh, did have Random House and had editors and, and was given advances and stuff. I mentioned the, the, the novelists only to say that um, the academic issue is, is, you know, I take it seriously, but we tend to blame academics for writing academic work. Uh, and only in the humanities, by the way, nobody blames scientists for only being read by other scientists. You know, they, they never get in trouble for this. Nobody, nobody says they need to, you know, stop writing for chemistry journals and, and write for the common man. And they never it's get into... Just, uh, yeah. And they never uh, get into big trouble for fabricating data. But once, if it happens in humanities, oh, look, this is all humanities. That's what they <laughs> always do. Right, right. Well, of course, and again, our research uh, often just involves reading. So it, it, it can be a kind of different thing uh, as far as data analysis goes. But I I, I am conscious of the problem of... of um, you know, trying to uh, write for the so-called lay reader, I just, uh, you know, I feel like it, it becomes a kind of false problem when that sphere is not re readily available. Uh, I also do find sometimes when people talk about, when academics talk about writing for the lay reader, they're being a little condescending. They assume that the lay reader can't can't read, uh, you know, interesting stuff. I don't mean to say necessarily the kind of tor tortuous prose that we associate with Kant or with Adorno or or with Sedgwick, since you mentioned her. But I, I, I you know, I, I'd like to think, you know, my writing could be read by anyone. You know, I, I, I certainly am not trying to to ob obfuscate or or to be difficult. Um, that said, you know, I, I'm, uh, I, I doubt that uh, if I handed out a ruthless critique of all that exists as a pamphlet to factory workers that they can't what i'm writing about um uh, maybe someone uh one one can only hope uh, uh you mentioned television radio again it, you know in the united states uh one of the first things that the reagan administration was able to pass in 1981 was uh overturning a, an old law about um politicized radio programs um, where uh, you had to give equal time to the other side if you were going to have political shows. And that that law went back to the 20s with the birth of radio and the fear that, I guess, you know, communists might get hold of a radio station and spread their propaganda. And so we didn't want political radio. Well, what that change in the law led to was, of course, Rush Limbaugh and the whole right wing, you know, radio sphere that is still uh, talk radio is dominated by right wing. There were efforts, I'm sure there still are efforts uh, to have radio and for that matter, TV uh, with more left-wing voices. And I'm sure some of them have their limited uh, successes, but I, I also think that it, it becomes, 
you know, to use a kind of Jamesonian term, the ideology of the form, it, it becomes one of those forms, the radio talk show, that seems to just inherently work better for right-wing talking points. Uh, like you said, oversimplification works well for them. Uh, you know, demonization, such as calling critical race theory what it is. You want to have a thoughtful conversation about the uh, legal theories of Derek Bell or of... Uh, uh, you know, other uh, critical race theorists, maybe NPR will let you on for a few minutes to talk about that. <laughs> maybe you can get on some, uh, you know, public radio talk show. But if you want to just rail about how, you know, critical race theory is destroying America, you know, tune into the right-wing radio, you'll get that just fine. Fox News started in 19, the cable channel started in 1996 and immediately not only became the number one news network, a position it has never seeded in its now almost 30 years, but I think the number one cable network. Um, I think cable news is inherently right-wing. I think the effort to have a left-wing cable news will turn it into something more right-wing than they wanted it to be because I think the the format actually works well for that. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that we can't use the media. I think Obviously, you know, some of the uh, alternatives, podcasts, um, YouTube, um, I, I'm, I'm not really familiar with this uh, uh, medium, but uh, one of my colleagues said that TikTok has a lot of sort of radical content sometimes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, the, that all media is, is, is bad for this, but I do think it's not too surprising that cultural criticism of the sort that might have still found wide audiences in the 40s and 50s by the 70s and 80s did not uh, or if it did it, it's the occasional you know book that sort of uh, surprises people by becoming a bit of a a bit of a phenomenon i i mean uh, uh the closing of the american mind by alan bloom you know that was a book by a uh, Plato scholar at University of Chicago, who at, at least initially was just griping about his lousy hippie students. <laughs> he, 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 he declared, of course, the, the central problem facing America as the Nietzscheanization of the left and prescribed that we read more Plato. I often think if only the right wingers today wanted us to read more Plato, can you imagine them pouring funding into classics departments? Oh, how much I would love conservatives like that. I mean, we don't have that anymore, of course. But yeah, I, you know, uh, that book got picked up by the right-wing media. And it, of course, got promoted by right-wing outlets that could do things like buy 500,000 copies and distribute them for free, you know. So it, they, they generated a bestseller out of it. So that's a form of cultural criticism, I suppose, that that went mainstream and 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 had a wide public, but even that I I don't think uh, you know is 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 what we're talking about. That that said, I, I don't want to end on a on a on a negative note. You do what you can in the time and space that you got, and I I certainly think there is value to academic work read by other academics, just as I think there's there's you know good work being done by scientists read only by other scientists. 
Um, I, I don't think that we should issue the opportunities if they avail themselves to us to speak to broader audiences. But I also don't think we should condemn anyone for, you know, for not having a, a audience. Like, I think most of us wish our books sold better. <laughs> and it's not our style of writing that has caused that, you know, not not to be the issue. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, there's a lot more going on. And uh, I have a couple of more questions. And uh, I really want to talk about chapter four of your book, which has a fascinating title, Reading a Donor <laughs> by the Pool. So I'll let you talk about this chapter. What is it about? And what do you mean by reading a donor by the pool? Oh, okay. Well, that that's actually uh, a line that I'm I, I, I draw from from Jameson, uh, and it's from his book on Adorno, uh, as you might expect, um, which was published in 1990. It's called Late Marxism, Adorno, or the Persistence of the Dialectic, and in that book. Um, uh, it's it's basically a study of Adorno uh, by by Jameson. He makes the sort of astonishing claim that whereas the 40s and 50s were dominated by Sartre and existentialism, and the 60s were Marcuse, and the 70s uh, and and uh, you know perhaps 80s dominated by uh, French theory, Derrida and Foucault, he he suggests that maybe our time, as we arrive in the 90s, will be the time for Adorno. <laughs> which seems like such a crazy thing to say about a philosopher who died in 1969 and who was associated with all that old world mustiness and whatnot. But that's part of Jameson's point. And um, at, at that moment, you know, this is, again, just as the Berlin Wall is falling, the uh, Soviet bloc is, seems to be crumbling. There is a very triumphal spirit in the United States, especially about... Um, the Cold War having just been won, and you know now there will be no, um, you know, U.S. versus Soviet versions of the world, but it will be one big happy capitalist planet. Indeed, some of what we now talk about in terms of globalization is associated with that. Uh, Francis Fukuyama's famous use of Hegel's "The End of History" to describe how the fall of communism would would then lead us to. We, we're now in the moment where, you know, history has at last reached its apogee uh, and the rest uh, of time will just be a matter of sorting out the details. But we've now reached that that moment. Uh, Jameson is, uh, you know, saying, you know, in this moment of, uh, uh, of, of triumphal, uh, you know, Western capitalist spirit, uh, we need the bile of, of Adorno we need his his negativity, his darkness. Um, he said to, we needed to combat. Uh, I think this is a direct quote: the polluted sunshine of the shopping mall. <laughs> and in in that context, he says the question today. You, you're probably aware of uh, the famous line from uh, Adorno about how there can be no poetry after Auschwitz. Uh, he said, the question today is no longer whether there could be poetry after Auschwitz, but whether we we can stand to read Adorno and Horfheimer by the swimming pool. In other words, in, in this world that is supposedly so bright and sunny and nice, you know, can we can we still handle the negative Frankfurt School, you know, critique of all of this? Um, and so I was playing with that image 
uh, the, the essay is not really, I mean, the chapter is not really on uh, Adorno per se, but the idea of the value of a kind of negative critique in a world where people are demanding that we be so positive and that we give up our negativity and whatnot. And, and so in that sense, that's what reading Adorno by the pool is. When you're surrounded by people being sunny and bright and playful, you need to still maintain this, this element of negative critique to combat whatever the ideology is they're, they're, they're foisting upon you, even if it's unbeknownst to them, of course. They don't realize they're being ideological. In, indeed, I, I think in our time, ideology critique uh, involves uh, perhaps the first step and the most important step is acknowledging that ideology exists because I think part of the the, the power of uh, sort of the uh, ideologies of capitalism in, in an era of globalization is to say, oh, all of that's gone. We're in a post-ideological world. You know, there, there is not that anymore. Uh, everything just is what it is to cite one of my most hated expressions that I hear almost every day, it is what it is. It's like, no, it is what it is not. You just can't see it. You know, read more Foucault, read more Adorno. <laughs> and, and that's part of the solution, right? High theory, that's what you put in the book. <laughs> well, you know, again, that's that's uh, you know for uh, for us who are interested in in, in literary studies and criticism, uh, culture. Uh, you know, uh, I certainly think the desire to kind of water down theory to make theory uh, lesser of a thing um, to suggest that. Um, we don't need too much theorizing, maybe just a little here and there on the edges, but, you know, it shouldn't be a main thing. I, I think that's going the, the opposite direction. I mean, I'm joking when I say, you know, we, we all need to go read more Adorno or whatnot, but I do think some of that supposedly older theory, and I, I mean, obviously, we're talking about stuff that is now 70, 60, 50 years old at least, Um still has value maybe has uh in, in enduring value but also um new value like to be revisited not necessarily in an antiquarian sense obviously um but in that foucault history of the present sense where we we look back on those insights and see what they might have for us today and i guess you know in using the term high theory i i just mean that you know there's a lot of talk about theory as if it were, you know, a, a, a fad like lava lamps or or bell bottom jeans, you know, stuff we did back in the '70s, but we don't do anymore. <laughs> you know? And uh, you know, it, 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 I think a lot of the work done in the '70s by people like Foucault and by uh, you know uh, Derrida say um, are, are valuable and not just valuable in, as representatives of what was going on at the time although i i still think the study of history is valuable so even if all you cared about it was what was going on at the time it's still worth reading but also to to see you know how that sort of i don't know we might say bold theorizing like you know an, an attempt to 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 look upon these you know contingent elements of our own systems and uh, societies and and wonder whether there are underlying connections or for that matter, just making the connections, saying, no, wait a second, you know, I know that they tell you, oh, that just is a political issue and this is an economic issue, but these are tied together. 
these things matter. You know, the um, Jameson uses an example of this. I mean, he's he's always talking about, of course, how Marxism or dialectical criticism or both, in his case, is all about, you know, uh, seeing the connections or making the connections. But he talks about how, you know, in India, for example, under Nehru, there was a, a, a real push to uh, promote more educational institutions and uh, especially in uh, technical institutes, um, producing more uh, scientists, computer, well, rudimentary in the 60s, of course, computer scientists. Well, that that's, of course, something that was in, in part motivated by a kind of socialist sense of needing uh, to create a, a class of, of, of intellectual and practical intellectuals uh, to help build, you know, the country. It turns out, of course, to have been connected very much to the outsourcing uh, of, of jobs in, in, in the West to, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, computer centers, phone centers, other things in, uh, in, in India and elsewhere in South Asia that um, capitalists who would have been absolutely opposed to the socialist policies uh, of the 60s are now benefiting from. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's to say um, uh, that is an interesting way of, thanks to the ruse of history and just uh, examining different factors that have gone on in, in our lifetimes, uh, to see how things that seemed utterly unconnected are not only connected, but connected in a way that affects almost every aspect of our world today, uh, including you know supply chains and and uh, information technology and whatnot. Um, the, this it seems to me is something that becomes visible through um, what Foucault called a critical attitude, and that would be ignored and and uh, remain relatively invisible as as it is for you know, most day-to-day -day mere readers of newspapers and whatnot who, who, who don't get into critical theory much. Um, you know, it's just, oh, that's just the world. That's just how it works. That's the way it's always worked. No, no, it's historical. It's social. It's based on a lot of, um, you know, contingent matters that happen the way they happen in certain ways based on their own historical and, and social situations. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that there's there's value in this, and to, and to bring it back to literature, which is after all what I do. I'm a literature professor. Uh, you know, this this is very much you know literature has has always served as a way of, I use the metaphor of course mapping, but a way of making sense of the world, and making sense of experience in the world. Uh, however, we imagine those words to be used. So that um, you know, a, a sort of critical attitude with respect to literature is not tearing it up and, and saying, "Oh, this book is bad. This book is this writer is good." It's it's a matter of seeing the ways in which it reveals these things to us and and sort of in in in, in inspiring it, you know, uh, creating greater awareness of how. Um, you know, not only how Dante tells us about, you know, uh, the 13th century Florence, but the the way in which, you know, uh, such works uh, and such, uh, you know, uh, constructions of new forms of poetry and whatnot uh, transform the world as they are also representing it. 
Um, uh, it, it's it's a small part of the university, but I think it's still a valuable part to 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 read literature and to read it critically. <laughs> uh, let's end this conversation on a more positive note, let's say, and talk about utopic thinking and what Frederick Jameson said about the dialectic of utopia and ideology. And so I'm really keen to know more about what he meant by that phrase and why we need utopic thinking as opposed to yeah, well, that negativity that some some people bring up. Yeah, I, and, uh, you know, I know that not everybody, you know, feels the same way about utopia, the, the very term that Jameson does. I mean, for Jameson, utopia is closely tied to just sort of the, the impulse to imagine uh, something other, you know, the, the sort of the limits on the, the real world as we know it. Um, he, he, he talks about it as a sort of meditation on the limits uh, of our world in, in, uh, which uh, allows us to envision, admittedly not clearly, because who could possibly know what another world that is possible might might be like? Um, and so, in in that sense, it doesn't have to be called utopia for those who don't like that term, but it has to be connected to this idea of the imagination and uh, to some sense of, you know, alterity itself, the idea of uh, difference. Uh, from you know not not just minor differences not just substituting uh Pepsi for coke or you know Pepsi for iced tea but imagining a world in which you know in entirely new forms of uh, the thirst <laughs> new forms of quenching thirst could could come into being uh, the Marcusa uses a phrase in his essay called uh, the end of utopia that I've always liked, which is the scandal of qualitative difference, um, which, you know, he's writing this in, I guess, the late 60s. And uh, so much of, of even the, the sort of socialist and progressive movement is about quantitative difference, more food, more shelter. And and he's like, yes, we, we do need that. We, we need all those things. But we also need to imagine and we need to allow ourselves to imagine the scandalous idea of a completely different kind of life, qualitatively different from our own, where we're not just fed and sheltered, but where there are entirely new needs that are um, uh, called into being, conjured into being, and and then met, and then perhaps exceeded, you know, uh, uh, and, and not just, you know, how do I make the status quo a little bit more tolerable to live in, but to have something completely different. Um, I think that's kind of what Jameson's getting at, but specifically the question of the dialectic of, of utopian ideology, you know, you could almost rephrase that, and he does in the final chapter of the conclusion of the political unconscious, which is where that phrase is the title. Uh, the title of that chapter is called the dialectic of uh, ideology and utopia. Um, is uh, kind of what we were saying at the beginning about positive and negative, um, where he himself says that Marxist criticism uh, can't just focus on the negative. Um, it can't just focus on saying what's wrong with our society and, and uh, you know, but has to have at least some element of um, a, a, a positive. And, and he says not only is, is that, you know, imperative for Marxism, as, as a method, 
uh, to see the good and the bad, as it were. But he said that it, it's also more accurate because there is always the good and the bad. The um, the example I gave, uh, which was uh, poorly phrased by me, about um, you know uh, what seemed like a bad idea to capitalists in the '60s turns out to have been very good for them in the '80s. But part of that is um, uh, you know Jameson talks about the dialectical reversal or the ruse of history or whatnot, um, where. Uh, at any given moment, of course, what seems to be uh, a limit or bad or uh, constraining could turn out to, in retrospect, have have been an advantage. That uh, time time will show us that oh, geez, I I hated it back then, but thank God it happened because otherwise this this new thing that I am in favor of uh, would not have been possible. Um, that is uh, sort of the, the movement of history itself, you could argue. But he says that, you know, from a Marxist perspective, you, you can't simply look only at the negative because um, the, there's a likely uh, a dialectical counterpart that you would find positive um, that, that, that is there as well. And, and, and therefore, you need to acknowledge it. That's part of the Marxist duty to... Uh, to see that aspect, what he calls the utopian aspect, um, as well, which, which uh, you know, to get back to my anti-post critique stuff, is is more about the caricature they were using about people being constantly just negative. Because uh, again, in Jameson and in a lot of others, they're not just negative; they're negative in favor of you know aspects that are also positive. And so he he actually says. <laughs> Had it here somewhere. Yeah, this is actually the quote that I quote. Any Marxist analysis of culture can no longer be content with its demystifying vocation to unmask and to demonstrate the ways in which a cultural artifact fulfills a specific ideological mi mission, but must also seek to project its simultaneously utopian power as the symbolic affirmation of a specific historical and class form of collective unity that's kind of the the takeaway message he wants us to have kind of at the last page of the political unconscious or close to it um but uh you know i mentioned that he wrote a book about a fascist writer wyndham lewis even in that book of course he finds that in wyndham lewis's actual fascism we find elements that we as leftists as uh, working class advocates or whatever um, can uh, find uh, a value to us. And this may be, you know, uh, just to round it out a little bit, going back to Marx and the ruthless critique. If we can't know what the future will be like, as Marx is saying in 1843, what we can know is what our contemporary position is, and so a ruthless critique of it is the way to um, gain any sense of what you know the new world might become. But if, as I'm saying, and Jamison's saying, and others are saying, uh, a ruthless critique also involves looking at the positive along with the negative, then the, that dialectic of ideology and utopia, you know, come together in the form of ruthless critique, I guess. Uh, Dr. Robert Talley, thank you very, very much for this conversation. Absolutely enjoyed everything you talked about. And I strongly recommend this book to our listeners and viewers. It's a wonderful book to read. And uh, there's a lot uh, to, to think about and take away with you once you read the book. Uh, 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a great honor to be here. And and uh, thank you also for reading the book. It's always nice to, to have one's books read. <laughs> thank you.